Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Monday through Friday, anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. And yet another Red Shirt Friday upon us. Not many Red Shirt Fridays left in the month of November already. And as I mentioned, as we were opening today, a veteran today who I have not seen for quite some time, but clearly remember every single interaction, Roger Savory, you and I have had. How have you been? Uh, Trent, my standard answer is I'm good. Even when I'm bad, I'm good. <laughs> well, the key is don't getting caught being bad. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you joined me in April and you had a project idea. I thought today on this Red Shirt Friday, it'd be a good opportunity to do a follow-up. How did that turn out? Um, so, uh, Trent, uh, I'd like to report that uh, all was wonderful and we were steaming ahead uh, at high speed, but uh, but sadly, I can't do that. But uh, anytime you're trying to change the world, you can't give up. You've got to be tenacious and just keep on plodding along. And uh, so we've got some new people who've joined the team and uh, are assisting us. And uh, uh, yesterday we just released our new logo and I've been uh, having a chuckle um, as people have been kind of liking it on Facebook and social media and trying to understand it. And um, But just trying to get the message out to build excitement um, because anytime you're trying to do something that no human has done in recorded history, um, it's going to clash with people's belief systems. So really at the core, and what I think we need to talk about, is that we have some belief systems globally that think that uh, the mankind is surpassing the resources and the ability to supply the daily needs. Your work, in the footsteps of your father's work, who you knew was wrong when he started as well, um, is all about how we have not begin to tap in to what the resources can actually provide for us. And feeding the future is about taking a, a different look at how we utilize those resources. Are we on the same page? Uh, exactly, uh, Trent. Yeah, for uh, I mean, we humans turn two thirds of the planet into a desert. We we, we never did it voluntarily. Um, we didn't know the process by which deserts were created. And uh, I've spent my whole life studying what caused the deserts to be created. And then, okay, if we understand the root cause, we can reverse it. Um, so we figured out finally what the root cause is. And now we believe we have a solution. And it's not beyond meat. It's, um, it's beyond the horizons of turning the 800 million acres of desert in America uh, to begin with, back into functional savanna grassland ecosystems full of grasses and shrubs and trees, um, bringing life back. That's how we feed, uh, well, as of what, two days ago, the 8 billion people on the planet. Mm -hmm. So let's first go to the basics so we know what mistakes we made. How did we create the deserts? Quite simply, one decision at a time. Mm, perfect. Like all good plans, one day at a time. Yep. So what do we do different? Uh, change how we make decisions. Okay. And uh, 
the primary thing was we, we never understood the complexity of nature and the complexity of life. Um, our success as a tool using APE is linear decision-making. And we're very good at very simple things. We are absolutely hopeless whenever we put complexity in. And, uh, and so that's what we need to understand with our decision-making. We need to learn how to deal with complex ecosystems and, and try and manage for complexity. You know, an ecosystem, you're worrying about sunlight, you're worrying about water, you're worrying about fungi, you're worrying about bacteria, you're worrying about nematodes, worms, um, plants, animals, root exudates, um, you know, carbon molecules. Uh, you know, I can go on and on, methane. There's so much complexity. So what we do as humans is we try and narrow it down to one. And that is, that's our downfall. Um, nature doesn't fo uh, work in one line. It's, it's this complex buzzing um, uh, hole. So, so we have to manage the hole. And I think, because I'm greatly concerned, and Roger in the last year have spent quite a bit of time, plan to spend more time, and I think to your point, correct me if I'm wrong, but right now I, I go into agricultural circles and too many times in circles where we should understand the complexity of the whole, we now have a carrot being dangled in front of ethanol plants, in front of coal-fired plants, in front of every single entity to take the carbon and bury the carbon not put it back in the soil, not continue the cycle of life, but to take the carbon dioxide and take it to Oliver County, North Dakota and bury it. And we're being paid to do such thing. And it's like, we're going to focus on carbon dioxide alone, just that one thing, and somehow think that we're going to improve the planet when in fact, we're going to create death. Yes. Um, sadly, Trent, you're 100% correct there. Um, uh, a lot of people confuse the difference between biological carbon and chemical carbon. And we have to keep biological carbon cycling mm -hmm. in the life cycle. It's, it what, it's what creates life. Um, now, and then the other thing is we have to convert chemical carbon from the atmosphere back into biological carbon and keep the carbon life cycle um, uh, functioning. It's so silly. People, you know, um, you know, want to bury all the carbon. You realize we're carbon. No, they don't realize that, Roger. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's they, completely they foreign to, to them. They yeah. they think their blood and flesh and bones were carbon. There was a very uh, good, uh, simple book written a few years ago, and it's called I think Should Meat Be on the Menu or, uh, or Should Beef Be on the Menu? Um, and it was a journalist who didn't have a dog in the fight, and he just decided to understand all of this and researched it. And he wrote a really good book um, where he explained uh, in layman's terms that uh, yeah, these different cycles. And uh, I'm kind of sad that the book didn't get more traction, but uh, the knowledge is out there if people actually want to go and find it. And animals are a key part of this life cycle and we've seen the demonization of all animals particularly beef cattle nothing could be more dangerous yeah no this is exactly it there's a um the herd is charging off in the wrong direction and the herd is charging off a cliff and uh, so our project fixed deserts um uh you know trying to fix the deserts and uh um you know turn the deserts back into grasslands our project is just to point out that 
Just because there's a desperation in humanity as humanity looks at the graph of human population explosion and they look at the graph of global desertification. So people can see that the deserts are getting bigger and they can see that the population is getting back bigger and they panic because they know intrinsically that those two graphs cannot be getting bigger without there being a problem. You can't have less place to feed people with and more people and not expect a collision. So people are aware of that. But our team at Fixed Desert, you know, um, uh, you know in our um, project, our team is the only team that's put their hands up and said, hey, guys, you're aware that there's a problem with too many people and too much desert. How about we turn the desert back into food producing um, region? Oh, by the way, the only tool, the only tool known to mankind that can do this is our grazing animals. Hmm. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, thank you for having me on, the, on this uh, show because this is the message we have to get out. There is a solution. Um, you know, just one, you know, kind of a, a, a financially viable model um, that I've uh, calculated um, based on current trends. And I, I know with time, humans will be able to do better. But to start off with, I see no problem with us turning 150,000 acres a year of pure desert back into grassland with a large enough cattle herd to feed a large enough, you know, our mega cities, be it a Phoenix, be it a, uh, Los Angeles, be it uh, you know an Albuquerque, um, the the big cities um, in the deserts, um, the the amount of meat that they consume, we can generate that meat nearby the cities in such a way that the landscape around the cities begins to be converted from blowing sand, asthma causing dust, uh, and and extreme heat blowing into the cities. Um, droughts, floods, and all that that goes along with it. And we can begin to stabilize that, cool the soils, and turn the land back into, into functioning eco ecosystems. And most of these cities, when they were founded, the records show that it was, it was utopia outside the cities. I mean, people didn't choose to build cities in deserts. The deserts happened once the cities were built. Roger, we're going to need to take a break right here. Roger Savory, my guest, we're talking about proper ecosystems, and we will be back with more. And the lights are still on because life is powered by coal. Get details about the coal advantage at lignite.com. Back with Roger Savory after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce on a red shirt Friday. Roger Savory, my guest. We're talking ecosystems and using deserts to feed people. Reversing the desert. That's the moral of the story, Roger. Coming to us from, I think he's in the Golden State. Are you not in California today? I am in Los Angeles. Yep. <sighs> well, that's your fault, but hey, somebody's got to be there. Um, I want to just follow up on what you said because... I actually saw this, and it was indirectly the work of a guy named Alan Savory. I spoke in Globe, Arizona some years ago, and on the north side of the town of Globe. Have you been to Globe? I think I've been to Globe. 
on the north side of globe there it's a mining town and there is this huge tailings of of the mine and what you described was happening every day in globe the wind would come up when it come from the north it would blow dust and globe was just a miserable place and a local uh, agronomist latched onto the work of Alan Savory and they went on that mine tailing which is a high as a it, from a Nebraska guy it's a mountain from a mountain guy it's like a little mohill but anyway they went on there they sectioned off with fence electric fence little paddocks and they started feeding cows hay on these paddocks and absolutely, absolutely you know what happened over course of time they built an ecosystem where now cattle just graze on these lush paddocks like like it was a, a major pasture. And it was the utilization of cows tromping in the the nutrients and the cows eating hay, replying the nutrients. And I believe they did put some grass seed in the original hay process. That was a microcosm of what you're talking about. And when I, I actually saw what was taking place, I'm like, that makes total sense. People just need to see that. Yes, yes. Uh, that project is one of my favorite ones. Uh, why I particularly like that project um, and the chaps who did that one was because mine tailings by definition have no seed. They're completely sterile because of the um, processing and refining. So um, a mine tailing, yeah, we have to put seed down because it's it's so bad. But we've been doing these little micro projects for 30 years. We kind of know what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, and then on places that are not mine tailings where it's old land, we found seeds that have germinated and started growing again that haven't been seen for hundreds you know, decades or hundreds of years or even thousands of years. Um, in, in Australia, a, a plant called um, uh, Townsville Lucerne which went extinct in, I think, 1979. The first time we did this, there was just this lush, you know, um, outbreak of Townsville Lucerne that was everywhere. Um, so a plant that hadn't been seen in 40 years, you know, returned with vigor when the mycelium tapped on the seeds and said, hey, conditions are now right again. You can germinate and grow again. So I, 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 I hate to interrupt you, Roger, but it is mind-boggling to me how a seed can lay dormant for what we think is a lifetime, and then all of a sudden conditions are right to come back. That's just incredible, but it speaks to how important building the ecosystem truly is. Well, it speaks to this complexity that we humans don't understand. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, they've got palm seeds from, uh, from the deserts of palms that went extinct at the time of Christ. And they found a 2,600-year-old seed, put wow. it on a petri dish, put the mycelium there to stimulate it, and it germinated and grew. Um, so, I mean, that is just mind-blowing that a seed just can sit for that kind of length of time, waiting for the right conditions. So I'm kind of highly excited for the project we want to do in the Sultan Sea. Uh, one of the things I did in my research um, was I checked the pollen records. Um, from like the tar pits and the uh, deep uh, soil samples. And the pollen records show that the majority of the grasses here in California, when I read the list, I kind of had a good laugh because most of the plant species on the pollen record 
are what we now consider to be African grasses. And uh, you know, if, uh, uh, if I tried to bring them into the area, everyone would say, oh, no, those are non-natives. Right. And I'm like, oh, but 10,000 years ago, they were native here. I mean, that's how limited our brains are. You know, our modern academics talk about natives and non-natives. And it's like, no, we've only got one planet. Gondwana land was one, you know, thing. Things, you know, succession, biology changes. But, you know, our succession has so changed things that we're down to blowing sand and cryptogramic soil. We need succession to go the other way, back to complete biodiversity and ultimately forests. See, the problem is that too many people talk about biodiversity by eliminating species instead of increasing species. And it just simply doesn't make sense. Correct. Correct. And the biodiversity is biodiversity. The, you can't limit it. You've just got to increase it. Mm -hmm. Our human instinct is always kill, 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 kill. And we've just got to, we've got to stop doing that. Is there a place you continue to talk about the project? What do we need to know about the project? Is there a website up and functioning that well, people can go um, get more information? Or? We're getting better at that. Um, so last time you scolded me for the name of the website. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did some deep thinking. Thanks, Trent. And, uh, and we've, we've improved it. So uh, uh, I should scold and nobody on website development because I'm the worst. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we we we've, we've gone from a very complex one, which I won't even repeat, um, because that'll mess people's heads up. And uh, <laughs> we've just now called it fixdeserts.com. I love it. That's perfect. Fizz, yeah. Fixdeserts.com. Yeah, and you can spell it as a singular or plural. You'll get there. And then we've got a, a, a Facebook uh, presence. We've got an Instagram presence. I think we're getting a Twitter presence. And we've got the website, uh, the website right now. Um, we've got a, a web developer who's going to hopefully greatly improve it over the next month. Um, but yeah, we're trying to get the message out and trying to get uh, financial support and, and more people on the team who wanted to help us um, take it forward. You know, right now, it's a whole bunch of volunteers um, who are working for free and trying to raise children and families and everything. But there are a lot of people on the planet who are passionate about making the world better and and solving the climate change problem. Um, so we're kind of kind of that's why that's why I call myself the team leader. You are as worldly as anybody I personally know or have met, and uh, I'm going to ask you this question with no idea how you're going to answer it. For years, I had people in everyday travel in airports on planes talking about weather modification talking about chemtrails and i would consistently just poo poo them roger and say yeah right in the last six months i have personally witnessed photographed and filmed more plane uh i don't know what uh, tailings over my house in the middle of the Great Plains of America than I can ever remember at a time when we know there's less air traffic than ever. So my question to you is, is there, in your mind, weather modification to control weather, rainfall, creating deserts instead of just how we manage the ecosystem to increase the biodiversity in areas? 
So Trent, um, whether I believe in the conspiracy theories or not is immaterial. Um, it really doesn't matter. Um, the, uh, you know, when I was a child, Rhodesia, we used to do um, seed clouding and it was quite funny because they would, uh, they would uh, seed a cloud here hoping it would rain there and it would rain in a completely different area. And instead of it being a gentle rain, it would be a deluge that would cause a flood. So they, they gave it right. up for a couple of years. Um, because the moral of the story is um, uh, that's us using our normal linear decision-making. It can never work. It can never assist us. It can never make things back better. However, because of all of that research, because um, I'm aware of what they're doing in the UAE and stuff with seed clouding, um, because of all that research, the fascinating thing is that they found that a raindrop needs a fungal pollen to begin the process of creating a raindrop. Hmm. So there's not much fungus in a desert. So just in layman's terms, because everything has to be cowboy basic layman's terms for me, the raindrop cannot form around any uh, around something, uh, nothing. It has to have a fungal seed in yeah. order to start its formation. Yeah, so if you look at the the Amazon and all of those clouds, mm -hmm. there's no dust particles in the Amazon. So the particles that begin all the raindrops in the Amazon are fungal spores. I have a feeling we've only tipped the iceberg on this particular discussion, Roger. Yeah, it's Fun, the complexity that humans just don't get. Yeah. Well, I admit, I'm a simpleton, but that's why I surround myself with people that see the big picture. Roger Savory. We've only just tipped the iceberg. Roger Savory, my guest today. We will take a break, Roger, and then come back and finish up. Before I let you go, thewallofhonor.org. Say thank you to the veterans proper and the first responders, thewallofhonor.org. Back with more after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Red Shirt Friday, Roll Route. Roger Savory joining us from Los Angeles. I won't ask him why. Just let him let him do that. It all comes back to soil health. You know, you answered a question for me, and I thought about it during the break. Even as a kid, you know, my father and my grandfather, we talk about storms and and rains and things. They've always followed rivers. And if if what you just told me is true, I don't just say that I, I dispute what you told me, but it makes sense that uh, the rivers have the most moisture, most fungal growth, and those molecules evaporating have the best opportunity to create raindrops because that's where it all starts. Is that too basic? Is that too complex for this human to figure out? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Yeah. Huh. Now, do you understand what you just did? Um, no. <laughs> so you um, you kind of tried to make the knowledge fit your belief system. Spot on, I did. And this is this is what has caused humans so much grief because we didn't have the knowledge. Well, 
see what I was, I was more thinking a little more locally. All my stock dams dried up in 2022. And unless I go out there and run and make a big puddle, it's never going to rain again. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to be quite honest, Trent, if you've got healthy soils and healthy lands, you should be able to knock all your stock dams out. You shouldn't need stock dams. Actually, I have stock dams because I don't want that water leaving my place. No, that's my point. The water should never leave your place because it should go into the ground exactly where it falls. Now, I'm going to have to think about that one a little farther. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got a property here in Southern California that's one of the most mountainous properties I've ever worked on. And we did such a good job of getting the hoof prints up on the hills mm -hmm. that every hoof print is like a cup holding water. And the water soaked so well in on the hills that a week after the cattle had left the paddock, the cow paddy at the bottom of the hill was still sopping wet. It physically couldn't dehydrate and dry out. And two months after um, the last rain, it was still, the ground was still wet at the soil surface. And this was in uh, when instead of their normal 18 inches of rainfall for the year, they only had eight inches. So it was technically a drought. Cow paddies can't dry up and the soil was still wet two months after the rains. Two months, Trent, on a hill. That makes complete sense to me when you put it in that frame of mind. Yeah. Now, we're, now that we're starting to think differently about these holes in this thing, we're doing a lot of things that really seem very strange, but the results are blowing us away. The, more, the quicker we're doing this, the more we're learning, the more exciting it is. Actually, the last time, I don't know if it was the last time, it was one of the times we interacted, and I pretty much plagiarized that, is the best way to increase plant growth is to increase animals that are dependent upon plants. And that's contrary to uh, logical thinking as well, because they think, well, if there are too many animals, they eat too much. No, more animals require more growth and improve the overall soil compact, or not compact, but soil health, leading to more plant growth. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cycle. Life begets life. More life begets more life. So... You're talking about we got to this point one decision at a time, and it was not rapid, which is also how we get out of it. Because what we're talking about here is so foreign to most people that they're not going to automatically go fix it right now. Correct. Um, so for our for our project um, that's on the website at fixeddeserts.com, we're making the point, look, uh, we're looking for financial supporters, political supporters, um, uh media supporters uh we're looking for all sorts of supporters to just say look um under the auspices of the uh, x prize which is for carbon sequestration can you assist us so we can do a pilot of six thousand acres mm -hmm. um and if we can do uh, and the reason i'm i'm not doing one acre is it's got to do with that weather and that system and the dehydration around uh, we need a large enough piece of land that we can actually begin to notice the impacts and push back against the extreme heat of the current desert. But if we can do 6,000 acres and people can see 
oh, actually, this this potentially could work. This does seem to be having these things. You know, obviously, we'll have all the scientists doing all the measurements. But I believe if we can do that, then as the 800 million acres of desert is generally not privately owned, it's generally owned by the U.S. government or the state governments, then... You know, um, you know, if 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 cities want to put their money towards doing good and carbon sequestration, then then this business can grow and do uh, ecosystem remediation for the nation, for the states. Um, and like I said, we can easily expand it then up to about one hundred and fifty thousand acres a year. Now, the other thing, and I, you know, uh, within the industry, we never like to beat each other up, but um, but. I believe we will actually put the confined animal feedlot operations out of business, but not in a bad way. We just have to change their model from a fixed in place where we create pollution model to a, okay, all the CAFOs are now moving. Um, and uh, yeah, once it's been demonstrated that it can work, then we can completely change you know, the model um, so that we don't have the negative unintended consequences of a CAFO and we have the positive regenerate our deserts um, uh, uh, effect. So I have to have this discussion with you because I am a fan of CAFOs uh, for a number of reasons. It, the, the biggest challenge we have in food production today is labor, aside from all the other junk politically, but labor is the challenge. We can consolidate animals and concentrate is probably a better word, concentrate animals into an area, feed them efficiently, grow them efficiently, and then take what they produce and reapply it to the land. That's a key component of that, though, is getting those nutrients back to the areas where plant growth is taking place. I don't know. Let me stop you there, Trent. Yep. We've tried it for we've tried it for 30, 50 years. It doesn't work. There are parts of that complex whole that we didn't understand. And, okay, tell uh, me more. And so um, the, the dung that we take out and spread on fields just doesn't have the same effect as dung and urine trampled in with the hoof action of the animals. It just doesn't have the same effect. Um, it's, it's, there's so much more complexity. Um, so a, you know, uh, overgrazing is a factor of time not of animal numbers or species. Overtrampling is a factor of time. Well, a CAFO, we're over, we're, it's, it's just too much. Right. So this, this concept we've come up with, it's a CAFO for one week, not a CAFO for 15 years. I, I got that. So, yeah. I mean, mob grazing is what we would call that, right? On the uh, Well, you see, it's, it's not really grazing because there's no forage for them. So we're mm -hmm. still feeding them in the desert. Okay. It's just instead of feeding them, you know, building steel bars and here's your pen and you keep you in this pen for the, you know, for the 180 days while you finish out, you're just going to be moving across the desert every day of your life. You know, and the trucks will still arrive to feed you. The trucks will still arrive to give you water because it's a desert. There is no water. There is no food. But when you leave... The first time it rains, forage will start to grow again. And then at a later date, then you'll have cowboys and, and, and herders managing another herd of breeding animals to now prevent that land from returning back to desert. 
because now we've got to keep the carbon cycle functioning. Right. Now we've got to graze once. It would probably, most deserts, you would probably only graze about once every two years mm -hmm. um, because they are in brittle environments. Mm -hmm. So you need a lot of land and a few cattle, but you would still graze it intensively, move, graze it intensively, move. Um, and, and, and there's a, it's exponential. It does speed up. But you have it is a slow start, and then we gradually improve as and as long as we're going in the right direction, that's 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 what matters. But we can't do any of it until we've protected that top millimeter of soil from the harmful effects of ultraviolet radiation. And the only thing we can do that with is that portable, call it a KFO. Um, yeah, for uh, for your listeners who understand that concept, it's a portable KFO that's only there for a week. Hmm. And this it's is gone. It, a... never, it never ever returns. It's there for one week, and then right. it's gone. I'm with you. Hmm. Uh, one big thing that this changes in American agriculture is that you're talking about acquiring the energy needed to fuel the system from the soil and plant growth where the animals are. Obviously, we're currently relying on the energy source to be in the neighboring cornfield. And 38% of the United States corn crop in 2022 is going to be fed to livestock. It would change that dramatically as I'm hearing you walk through this. Well, um, and there again, uh, <laughs> everything I'm talking about is a dramatic change. Mm -hmm. um, no, we wouldn't do a corn crop to feed these animals because one of the things we've learned is the importance of biodiversity in fields. So, for example, now we are planting roughly 120 different species in one field to grow forage for livestock, not just corn, 120 right. species. And I'd like to go higher. I just can't find enough seed varieties. So, so you're, we're, you're, we're you're planting, planting things we would normally call weeds in pastures. Um, no, uh, basically, I, I'm planting your vegetable garden <laughs> in, in a pasture. Roll turning, out. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more tomato and potato talk after this. Roger Savory, my guest. It's getting good. You did just mention two poisonous ones, though. So we'll leave those ones out. Now let's take a moment and talk about the certified Piedmontese beef system. In fact, the Lone Creek Cattle Company system is much like what Roger's talking about, case in point. In York County, Nebraska, Lone Creek bought land under a center pivot, did not grow corn. And local farmers in York County thought they were nuts. They planted grass and feeding cattle grass-fed beef under a center pivot. Do you know how much beef we can produce per acre in this manner? And we're back to grasslands. It's underwater. It all makes sense. What makes sense also is that you, the producer, get paid a proper share of the consumer's food dollar. Certified Piedmontese. Go to the website, certifiedpiedmontese.com. Look at what is happening in terms of the innovation of marketing this beef in a manner that people are wanting it time and time again. It all hinges upon the tenderness aspect of the Piedmontese cattle. Details at LoneCreekCattleCode.com. Welcome back. Roll, roll route. Trent loose alongside Roger Savory. Uh, my wife just cleaned out the garden and tucked the tomato plants and potato plants to the horse pen. They didn't eat them. 
Are you telling me we would have killed them if they'd ate them? Yes, <laughs> Don't tell my wife yeah. that I won't have any horses left. <laughs> yes, they're the nightshade family. And the nightshade family, by definition, are not are, are toxic and non-palatable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I'm going to have to have you on here every week to bust all these old myths and legends that we've had going on. Well, you, you are correct, Trent. Everything I'm doing is a paradigm shift. So it's a complete new way of thinking. And it, it it's, yes, that's exactly what it does. It just breaks all our myths. Yeah, and, and I, I just keep going back to Globe Arizona because I saw what took place there. And it was absolutely incredible. And I can see where grazing animals are the key to our future. Yeah, no, t uh, Tony Tipton did a fantastic job in, in Globe. But I can also tell you, the United States agricultural system is fueled by corn. And um, yeah, that's a battle. So it, it's not a battle. Farmers want, uh, want to grow a crop that makes a profit. If, if the United States government has the goal of climate, solving climate change and turning 800 million acres of desert back into grassland, just like they gave subsidies for ethanol. You know, if, if we just say, look, we need this forage grown, the farmers will grow whatever they're asked to grow as long as it's profitable for them. See, it, it, we've just got to set a different goal. The goal is now wow. we still need to get the animals to feed the cities. We still need cheap meat into the cities, um, except now instead of it all going into a CAFO that doesn't move, now that same well now we grow even more crops so now all the farmers creating seeds for those 120 seed varieties they now have a business now the the farmers instead of sterilizing their soils with just a monoculture of corn will have so much biodiversity in their crop fields that they will start increasing the fungus in their cornfields oh guess what will happen to rainfall when that happens mm-hmm yeah, you've yeah. Got a lot of I'm not arguing with you, Roger. What I'm telling you is I know how much farmers enjoy growing corn, and I don't think it matters how much profit you give them somewhere else. If they can make a living growing corn, they're going to do it. It's just an addiction like I've never seen. Um, well, if you look at the vast number of farmers who are changing over to planting cover crops and then doing it their is corn, happening. Um, you know, this, the, basically the cover crop will now go bigger mm -hmm. way bigger and it's yeah. exciting i i haven't seen a farmer uh, doing this yet who hasn't just got vastly excited they're like there's so many birds in our paddocks now they're bees and the paddocks are alive and you can feel the energy and you can smell the soil look at all these funguses farmers love seeing life absolutely i mean you know uh, and and when they start seeing it again and talking to grandpa about what things used to be like they get really excited so, I get irritated at my county, uh, county commissioners and my road district. They're constantly out there mowing the roadsides for for what reason? Why why are they out there mowing roadsides? What purpose is that other than spending time doing something? They could be doing something else. Oh, I'm not going to get into that. But basically, <laughs> someone's making money. <laughs> yeah. But I am going to, the only thing that I, I'm, I'm going to argue with you on until the cows come home, pun intended, I do not, will not, have not accepted a subsidy and will not 
in any way, shape, or form agree with you that we can make this happen with government intervention. This has to be accomplished without government intervention or it'll never work. Uh, I would like to agree with you. However, there's a whole other agenda um, going on. And the other agenda is in modern day democracies, um, the lesson learned from the French Revolution was if the price of a loaf of bread goes up, the government loses power. And so in modern Western democracies, since uh, shortly after World War II, governments have used subsidies to keep the price of a loaf of bread low so that people continue to vote for them. So it's got nothing to do with farmers. It's got nothing to do with right or wrong. It's, it's about keeping cheap food going into the cities. I, I agree with you, except right now we, we are coming up on Thanksgiving mm -hmm. and uh, all reports are even Farm Bureau came out with their annual Thanksgiving study saying that the cost of all ingredients is are about 23% higher. Mm -hmm. And what has happened in the past two years and in terms of inflation and the food business is a direct result of policies that created that. Oh, absolutely. But, but Trent, food prices should have gone up 400%. Remove the subsidies and that's the real price of food. Food used to be two thirds of a man's salary. Absolutely. Now food is half a percent of his salary. Right. That difference is the subsidy. So remove the subsidy, put the price of, of, a, of a pound of beef up to $100 a pound, um, and you don't need the subsidy. Well, I am a proponent uh, in a fairy tale land that we have no subsidies for anything, anybody, any industry, from airline to railroad to mothers to farmers. Life would get really good for everybody if we just simply removed all subsidies, period. Trent, that's that's a, that's a nice ideal, but it's not going to happen. So we, we have to work with. <laughs> Don't with burst my bubble. I still have a plan to make it happen. Good. <laughs> I think we'll fix the deserts first. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it, it's the basis of our whole economic system here in America. Um, so you're not going to rock that boat. Okay, but uh, let's talk about the bigger picture. Of, let's just talk about the United States because I can't speak to Kenya. Uh, I know there are major problems there. I can't speak to Australia because I, I went there five times. So I think I'm an expert in Australia, although I'm not there as much as you and you live there. But 33% um, of the United States landmass is owned by state and federal government. And what they are doing and their lack of management of their owned property, which is becoming a desert everywhere where they own, is decreasing diversity. So the government is the worst culprit in the nation. I'm not going to disagree, but that's just because of linear decision making. Mm. One day you'll have to have me on for my IPA, Independent Parties of America, um, and we can do a podcast about politics. I got uh, really excited there for a moment when you said you're going to bring IPA. Then you know, I, I didn't realize it was Independent Parties of America. I thought it was Indian Pale Ale, which was all about the hops and the ability to store beer all the way across the Indian Ocean. <laughs> we have four minutes left. Roger, what, what is the time best spent here to make sure people have a grasp of? Um, Trent, I think, you know, uh, 
in 2013, my father, Alan Savory, did the TED talk that uh, um, about climate change and and it was very well received. I, I understand it was the most watched ever TED talk. Um, it's had five or eight million hits, but it was watched in schools and classes. So the number of people have seen it is much higher than the number of hits. And in that talk, it was offering hope to humanity, but it was talking about the land that people are still using. It was not talking about the land that man has given up on, the pure deserts. So that was 2013. Today, in 2022, I'm talking about the piece of land that humanity has given up hope on. And that's two-thirds of our planet, or in America, 800 million acres. I'm going to say that again. Mm. 800 million acres. And what I have presented to the world is my plan for how do we address that elephant in the room? And how do I offer humanity hope that, yes, we, we've found a way of solving it. It's financially viable. It'll actually be extremely profitable. Not that any investors would draw any shares because everything would be plowed in to expanding, to expanding, to expanding from 150,000 until we've done all 800 million. But we can make money doing it we can feed more people, we can lower temperatures, we can help solve the climate change issue, um, we can fix the water cycles, we can fix the carbon cycles, there is hope. And that is what, um, what you'll find at fixeddeserts.com and in the project I'm leading. And, uh, and I'm just looking for supporters to get in contact to help me because I'm just one mad crazy farmer. Um, I need finance people, I need angel investors, I need um, hedge funds. I need I need the people who give lip service to let's solve climate change to to help me. Um, so if any of your viewers and listeners um, are uh, feel passionate about climate change and feel passionate about humanity and feel passionate about yes uh, offering a better future for the for the future of the world. I mean, what two days ago we crossed the eight billion person mark. By the way, we're three years ahead of track on that. Um, you know, I'd like to offer hope that uh, my version is the 2.0 version, and it's the how do we heal the pure deserts and 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 help humanity. So I'm just looking for support and and help, and thank you for having me on your show um, to try and get the word out. And uh, yeah, we need to get this out onto hundreds of different podcasts. We need everyone to get the message that there is hope that we can actually turn the real deserts back into functioning ecosystems. Man created them through his decisions and now man can fix him through his decisions. So I'm, I'm excited about the future. I don't know how we'll get there. I don't know what will unlock the kind of log jam we're kind of facing right now. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's enough passion in the world. We should be able to get there. Well, Roger, I continue to hear about these billionaires in the world that want to invest in underground cities and do all of these things to plan and prepare for the devastation of climate change. It seems to me like a small investment compared to what they're talking about and what you're talking about is the true solution to fix the desertification that we have happening and to feed the planet whatever size it may be. And by the way, when you're producing more plants, you're producing a healthier planet. It's that simple. Yeah. So and, there and, and should, there should right. be somebody want to latch onto that. 
we're, we're just looking for 100 million to get started. And it is small in the big scheme of things. Roger Savory, fixthedeserts.com. Did we do okay with that? We did. Fixdeserts.com. Fixdeserts.com. Trent and Roger, both of us reminding you, all roads do lead to a rural route. Most importantly, do something. Don't just sit back and say, oh, that's interesting. Got a great place for you on the weekend to study up on empowering yourself as a citizen for a free and fed America. Protecttheharvest.com.